Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for spring and the promise of new life that we have in you. We thank you, Lord, for how sweet it is to know you. And as we come and, and learn even more, we just pray you would keep our minds and hearts focused this morning on the word. Strengthen our sister Catherine for the task you have ahead of her. And Lord, we just ask you to um, protect her and care for her as only you can do. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be talking about the second church sermon. So if you'd open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, we'll look at verses 12 to 26 today. And I hope she'll get your homework questions in here maybe while you're still um, sitting here so you can... I don't even remember what the questions are, but it's sometimes good to have them in front of you while I teach, and then you can maybe jot down a note or two. <laughs> All right. In the midst of the daily life of the early church, you know, the new believers were being taught apostolic doctrine. They were enjoying their koinonia fellowship, their partnership not only with God but with one another through their observance of the um, Lord's Supper, which they were doing daily in homes, and also in their uh, prayer sessions, which they had privately in homes. They were going from house to house, having a wonderful time, and they would pray in the homes and have the Lord's Supper, and then they would share a meal together. But they would also pray, of course, at the three required times in the temple. Well, during the midst of this early church life, the Lord gained the wonder. Remember the Greek word thambos, the wonder and the amazement ecstasis of a large crowd of Jews by way of the healing of a lame man. And that miracle was, of course, spectacular in a number of ways. It is the first specifically recorded apostolic miracle of the church age. Remember in Acts 2.43, it said the apostles performed many signs and wonders, but the first recorded one by an apostle was this healing of the lame man. Furthermore, how old was he? He was above 40 years of age, it told us in Acts 4.22. So he was well beyond any hope of a human cure. He had long ago given up any hope of being cured by a physician. His bones and his muscles and his tissues, his whole you know, lower, lower body would have so long ago atrophied that he would never walk apart from a divine miracle. Everyone who, uh, something else special about him is that everyone who frequented the temple would recognize this man. And why is that? Where did he sit? Or where was he laid every day? Right there at the beautiful gate. So he was easily recognizable. I was reading one commentator and he said that it could have been that this man was there when the Magi came looking for the one who was born as king of the Jews. And that's, that's feasible. I mean, he'd been there a long time, so everybody knew his face. The miracle that took place in his body was so immediate. It was just instantaneous, right? And it was so complete that one minute he was laying there lame, and the next minute, what was he doing? Leaping. Lame one minute and leaping the next. The healed lame man, man was not only immediately very, very public about his joy, and why wouldn't he be? 
and you just imagine after 40 years of never walking and then all of a sudden you're able to run and dance and skip and hop and jump and leap and all. Of course, the joy was just very evident. He was very public about that, but he was also very public about his praise to God and his thankfulness to the men the Lord had used to perform the miracle in his body. Remember it said they were, he was holding on to Peter and John. He was so thankful. Well, all these particular aspects of this apostolic sign miracle were divinely orchestrated by, of course, God in order to draw a large, willing-to-listen crowd to whom Peter would then have an opportunity to preach about who? Jesus, of course. He's going to have an opportunity to preach about Jesus, and that's what Acts 3, verses 12 to 26 is. It's Peter's second sermon, the second recorded sermon of the church age, and that's what we're simply calling it. I couldn't come up with anything clever. It's just the second church sermon. It's the title of our lesson. Now, we talked about this before, too. Apostolic sign miracles were to confirm apostolic teaching. And apostolic teaching was what? The teaching of who? The teaching of Christ, exactly. And so, therefore, it always centered on the significance of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the gospel message. The thing lost people most need in order for their attention to be gained is preaching that goes straight to their conscience. If you go to a church and your conscience is never stirred up and bothered a little bit. You know, if you can just sit there and utter comfort, something is wrong. You should always be convicted by the preaching. This took place in the first church age sermon when some 3,000 devout Jews were added to the church body that already consisted of 120 believers earlier that morning. 120, and then after Peter preached that first sermon, 3,000 were added to the church, so it was about 3,120. And likewise, this is what takes place after this second church sermon, as the number of men in the church grows to about 5,000. That's what we're told in Acts 4.4, if you want to take a peek. After this second church sermon, it says the number of men grew to be about 5,000. That means there's about 5,000 men now in the church which it would include the 120, you know, and then the 3,000. So if you add women and young people, you know, the, the number is even higher. So both of these first two sermons of Peter serve the church today, the church universal, the corporate church, as excellent spirit-filled preaching that persuades people to believe in Christ. Wouldn't it be great to have sermons nowadays where you see 3,000 get saved and the next sermon it jumps up to 5,000? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, the theme of the first sermon, do you remember, it was found in Acts 2.36, was that God made that same Jesus who Israel crucified, God made that same Jesus both Lord and Christ. That was the theme of the first sermon, Acts 2.36. The theme of this second sermon is found in Acts 3.26. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, 2.36 and then 3.26. So go ahead and look at the last verse of chapter 3. This is the theme. It says, basically, Peter's preaching. He says, God wants to bless you. Who is he speaking to? 
Israel, Jewish people, God wants to bless you through his son, Jesus, by turning you from your iniquities. Actually, we could say that the second sermon is an expansion on the first sermon. Peter goes on to tell more and more about Jesus in each sermon that he preaches. You know, really, the greatest miracle of all miracles was not really the resurrection. If you think about it, the resurrection for the one who is the resurrection and the life was actually a piece of cake. For Jesus, the resurrection was not that difficult. He is life itself. The greatest of all miracles is that God sent his son to die to pay the full price for our iniquities, for our sins. Isn't that the greatest miracle of all, that God would leave heaven, the bliss of heaven to come down here to suffer what he did for you and I compared to the resurrection? That was a whole lot of, you know, more difficult for him and a much greater miracle that he was willing to do it. And this is the message of Peter's second sermon to the citizens of Jerusalem, the very people who under their religious leadership had demanded Jesus' crucifixion. Why would God send his first message of salvation and hope and forgiveness to the very people who had just crucified his only beloved son? Is that not grace? Why would he do that? Well, Peter gives us the answer in verse 26. It was to bless them. The goodness of God just doesn't get any clearer than that. The very people who crucified his son, and he, he wants to bless them. You know, God really does not have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, does he? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His great desire is to turn everyone. It's his desire that no man would perish. It's his desire to turn everyone from their sins, from their iniquities, to his son, to their savior. Well, in considering Peter's second sermon, we're going to look just basically at two parts. It's real easy. I didn't even write it up on the board. But the first part is going to be in verses 12 to 18, which I'll read in just a second. We're going to discuss how Peter turned the situation around so that the people had the right focus. They're actually focused right now in the story on him and John and the lame man. But he has to turn them around so they have the right focus. And then in verses 19 to 26, we're going to see his presentation of the right appeal. The right appeal. He makes an invitation, okay? So let's start out by looking at the right focus. And for this, I want to read verse 11 just to tie it in with what we discussed last time. And then we'll go ahead and read verses 12 to 18. All right, starting in verse 11, it says, And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John... You know, he was embracing them. All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, 
when he, Pilate, was determined to let him go. But she denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance, wot is a funny word, isn't it? <laughs> in other words, now, brethren, I know that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. All right, in these seven verses, 12 through 18 there, the Apostle Peter once again is using his new sword, not that little dagger sword that he had used in Gethsemane. He's using his new sword, the, the word of God, under the leading of the Spirit, in order to exalt the name of Jesus. You know, in his Pentecost sermon, his first sermon, Peter paved the way with eight verses. Back in chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, he talked, he paved the way for eight verses before he got around to saying the name Jesus of Nazareth. But notice in this second sermon now, Peter states Jesus' name almost immediately, right there in verse 13. So there's only one verse before he said the name of Jesus. Actually, he expands on who Jesus is by including in this sermon, which is really a rather short sermon. It's just from verse 13 to 26 because it gets interrupted. He doesn't get to finish this sermon. But he expands on who Jesus is by giving six titles, six names for Jesus out of more than 200 that are included in the Bible. Do you know there are more than 200 names for Jesus in the Bible? Well, in this sermon, we have six of those names. He is called the Son of God in verse 13 and 26, which we'll talk about is really the Greek word pais, which means the servant of God. He's the servant of God. He is the Holy One in verse 14. He's also the Just One in verse 14. He's called the Prince of Life in verse 15. And of course, Christ in verse 20 which means the anointed one, the Messiah. And then in verse 22, he's referred to as the prophet of the Lord that was um, like unto Moses. Moses had predicted that there would be a prophet like unto himself who would arise among the Jewish people. And they all understood that to be a reference to the Messiah. As with all spirit-filled persuasive preaching that leads to conviction to repentance and salvation, Peter's sermon was Christ-centered. All sermons. Have you ever heard a sermon where the name of Jesus is never even mentioned? I have, and I don't like it. <laughs> All preaching should be Christ-centered. And, and Peter's preaching was always Christ-centered. All the apostles, their preaching was Christ-centered. His preaching was also scriptural. He's always referring to um, some of the Old Testament scriptures. It's also highly theological. It's bold, very bold, and yet compassionate. 
And of course, then it has application. He has an appeal. He gives an invitation. Peter's theme of this second sermon, remember, his theme is that God wants to bless you, Israel, you first. He wants to bless you first by turning you from your iniquities, which is why he sent his son. That's why he sent his son, to bless people, to turn them from their sins. In verses 12 to 18, Peter explains what God has done to provide that blessing. But in verses 19 to 26, which we haven't read yet, but in that part, man has to respond. The first part of the sermon, Peter says, what God did to provide the blessing in the latter part of the sermon is really, that whole last section is one major appeal to the people as to what they must do in order to obtain that blessing. All right, so do you follow the whole sort of outline of the sermon? Dr. John Phillips, in his commentary, states that there is nothing like a changed life to draw a crowd. And that was certainly true with the completely healed man who was over 40 years old and had never taken a single step in his life but was now leaping and dancing for joy. He certainly did draw a crowd. And the man showed wisdom. This, this lame, healed man, former lame man, showed a great deal of wisdom. Uh, three things I could think about that he showed wisdom. Number one, he put his faith in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. I, we talked about this two weeks ago, but I'm sure sitting there at the beautiful gate, year after year, he had heard all about Jesus, and he did put his faith in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit later in verse 16. So he put his faith in the right person. And secondly, he praised God, not Peter, right? That was wise. He praised the right one. He praised God and not Peter, not John. Third, I don't know if you thought about this, but he did not attempt to do the speaking to the crowd. You know, he could have taken the limelight there, center stage, and he could have been the one who did the speaking to the crowd. But he very wisely left that to Peter. You know, in our day, what so many churches would do is they would take a man like this, you know, a brand new Christian, and they would give him a speaking itinerary and, you know, travel. he'd travel all around the country and speak at all kinds of churches before he was discipled with apostolic doctrine. And that can be very dangerous. I mean, so many people want to see someone from Hollywood get saved and then they put him on center stage and they don't know diddly squat about the Bible and they can mislead and say wrong things. So wisely... This man didn't speak. He was the testimony by just standing there and leaping. I mean, he could just be jumping up and down. That was all he needed to do. But Peter, Peter is the one who was anointed to preach the gospel, and so he did. Once the wonder-filled, greatly amazed, marveling, and curious, curious crowd was gathered in the porch that is called Solomon's, Peter wasted no time at all in answering the crowd's unasked question. Remember the first sermon? They did ask a question. After they heard all the 120 people speaking um, the wonderful works of God in their own Gentile languages and dialects, the people had said, what meaneth this? 
What is this all about? Well, this time they don't ask that question, but it's obvious that that's what they want to know. So that's why I said Peter answers their unasked question. The first thing he does in answering, what meaneth this? You know, how in the world did this guy get healed like this? First thing Peter does is to redirect their focus. Just as he had done with the lame man himself when he had redirected his focus from silver to the Savior. Remember when Peter said, silver and gold have I none? But such as I have I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The man had been looking to Peter and John, expecting to receive something from them, instead of expecting to receive something from the Lord. And these people now were earnestly, it tells us, they were earnestly looking at Peter and John as though it was by way of their power and their holiness, you know, their righteousness, that the man now walked. You know, it's kind of interesting to compare how in the first sermon, the Pentecost sermon, Peter began by refuting the accusation of drunkenness. Remember that? You know, we're not all drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. So he began that sermon by refuting drunkenness. And now in this second recorded sermon, he also has to refute something. Starts off by refuting the exaltation of the crowd from John and himself. You know, they were lifting up John and him, exalting them. He has to redirect that focus. He has to, um, to refute that exaltation to have them exalting Jesus. So it's funny to me that it's basically in the two sermons. First one, he says, we're not drunks. Second one, he says, we're not deity. <laughs> we're not drunk and we're not divine. Now the once proud Peter, remember Peter was the one who said to the Lord, though all men will fail you and deny you, Lord, yet not I, I will never do that. Proud Peter is now also a completely transformed man in his walk with God. Just like the lame man, Peter has a new walk with the Lord. And he did not hesitate to make sure that everyone understood that it was not because of his power or his goodness. Nothing about him or John that enabled the man to walk. What's the book of Acts? It's the continuing works of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the continuing works and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ through his church by his spirit. Peter did not for a second take any pleasure or glory from the crowd's focus on him. And the old Peter might have, you know, yeah, well, I was the one that reached forth my hand and, you know, took him by his right hand. But he, didn't, he would not elevate himself one bit. He immediately set about to turn the focus of the crowd to the glorious Redeemer. The crowd listening to Peter's second sermon, by and large, was different from the Pentecost crowd. You know, that last spring feast, the, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost or Shavuot, it's, it's over. This is maybe several months later now. And so the vast majority of uh, the people now gathered on Solomon's porch in the temple, which is, it was on the east side of the temple, um, and the ones who are curious about the lame man's healings were undoubtedly local Jews. 
You know, other than the 3,000 who got saved on the day of Pentecost who stayed around in order to be discipled, all the other Jews had gone back to their homes. So most of this crowd for this second sermon are local residents of Jerusalem. Remember how in the Acts 2 sermon, Peter had quoted from David's prophecies? I think there were three different times he quoted from David in the Psalms. He quoted from David. He reminded them of the Davidic covenant even in order to demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection had been predicted. He used David to show how the resurrection had been predicted. Well, now in his Acts 3 sermon, Peter attributes the resurrection of Jesus predicted by David and, of course, others, he attributes that resurrection to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Who are they? Israel's patriarchs. This is a description of God. You know, he's saying God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So this is a description that the Jews would be very, very familiar with. And it stresses God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. You know, the covenant of Abraham, you could read about it in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, was, you know, God said to Abraham, I will make of, of thee a great nation. And he went on to say that anyone who blesses you, I will bless. That's why it's so dangerous if the United States turns our back on Israel. It's important to continue to support Israel. <laughs> And bless Israel, as history has shown, every nation that turns their back on Israel, they're doomed. But he says, I'll bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And then he said to Abraham, and from your seed, it will be through your seed, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that was also in Genesis 22:18. That's the Abrahamic covenant that went on down through his son Isaac. And then Jacob, and you know, to all the Jacob's name was was changed to Israel. So it was a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. Peter was not going to say anything to this crowd of people that would conflict with the continuity of the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's telling them right up front. This Jesus, God, the God you worship. The covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, he is the one who raised Jesus. And this takes his listeners, of course, all the way back to, to the book of Genesis, all the way back to that promise God made with Abraham. And this is a subject that Peter returns to at the end of this sermon. If you look at verses 25, 26, he goes right back to talking about Abraham and reminding them again of the Abrahamic covenant. Peter says that the God they all believe in hath glorified his son. And I told you earlier, but that Greek word for son is pais. It's actually the word servant. It's a messianic term, the servant of the Lord, God's servant. It's a messianic term that would draw the minds of the Hebrew people to the prophecies in Isaiah that spoke of God's servant. One such passage is Isaiah 42.1 where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. 
And then another very familiar Isaiah passage that depicts the Messiah as God's suffering servant is Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, 12. You all know about Isaiah 53 because we talked a lot about it. We're talking about the sufferings of the Lord on the cross. There it's the suffering servant. And the Jews never did know what to do with that particular passage, did they? They still don't know what to do with it. They dismiss it. It sounds too much like Jesus, doesn't it? They didn't want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a reigning Messiah. Now, of course, God's servant, don't get all hung up on the fact that I said, well, really should be the word servant, because guess what? God's servant is his son, one in the same person. And Peter was indirectly stating here that the sufferings of the Messiah are ended. The suffering servant's passion is all over with because the God of our fathers hath glorified his son, his servant, Jesus. So that means his suffering is over, right? He's been glorified. How was he glorified? Two ways. In his resurrection, he was glorified, and what else? All the way up, his ascension, he was glorified. And then, without any warning, Peter gets this far, and then just boom, he plunges that sharp sword of the Holy Spirit conviction right into their souls, as he did the last time when he pierced them right through. He pronounces Israel's guilt in rejecting God's servant, their own Messiah, God's son. There is no doubt that the spirit of the living Lord, the Holy Spirit, is the one who was giving Peter this boldness to say this because there he is standing in the heart of the city and in the heart of the temple with religious rulers everywhere. How do I know that? Well, I know it by Acts 4.1. There's religious rulers all around, and Peter is standing there boldly, boldly reminding the Jewish people of their Calvary crime. That takes a lot of boldness to do that. And as I said, we'll see he doesn't get through this sermon before he's arrested. Um, He reminds them of the worst crime that's ever been committed. There, There is no crime greater than killing God's son. They had delivered God's servant, God's son, their Messiah, who Peter clearly stated was Jesus. So no doubt about it, he's told them who their Messiah was, Jesus. And you know what, the, the, the Greek form, Jesus is a Greek name. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name what? Who knows? Come on, say it, I see it on your lips. Joshua, right, yeah. The Greek is Jesus, the Hebrew is Joshua. And what does the name Joshua mean? What does Jesus mean? Savior. His name means Savior. The Lord is salvation. They had delivered Jesus, Joshua, Savior, up to the Gentiles to be crucified. So see, Peter includes the Gentiles in this great crime too, doesn't he? He mentions them. They denied, the Jews denied Jesus, their Savior, in the presence of Pilate even when that Roman governor was determined to let him go. Verse 13, he says that. Pilate knew the injustice of the whole situation, didn't he? 
He knew why the Jewish religious rulers wanted Jesus crucified. He knew that they were envious of him and they had their, their unjust reasons. And he declared Jesus to be innocent how many times? Does anybody remember? How many times did Pilate declare Jesus to be innocent? Six. And then if you add his wife, seven. And then even Herod sent him back, which meant I don't see anything worthy of death in him. So somebody said eight. There was actually a total of eight if you include his wife, Pilate's wife and Herod. But, uh, but we found out that Pilate, you know, he compromised and he caved in when the Jewish leaders threatened his position with Caesar. His position was more important than justice. The people denied Jesus, Peter says. You denied him. They denied him in the presence of Pilate by their words, crucify him. They denied him by their words, we have no king but Caesar. And remember that awful one, let his blood be on us and on our children. They denied him. They, it actually, the, the word means they disowned him. They disowned him when they desired the murderer Barabbas over Jesus who Peter declares to be the Holy One and the Just One. Remember the Holy One? That was another, uh, that is another messianic title for Jesus that we saw Peter used in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost uh, when he quoted from Psalm 1610 regarding the Old Testament's declaration written by David, of course, that the Messiah would resurrect from the dead. Because God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Yeah. Peter also called Jesus the just one, which really speaks of his righteousness. You could say the, the righteous one. He calls him the Holy One and he calls him the righteous one. When given the choice that Pilate presented before them, the Jewish people, spurred on by their leaders, chose a very guilty murderer over the holy righteous one. Terrible choice, wasn't it? But that's what they chose. And then Peter's indictment of their guilt concludes with his statement that they killed the prince of life. Now that word prince in the Greek is archegos. It's kind of like archaic looks like if you saw it in English. Archego speaks of the originator of something, like a pioneer. In Hebrews 2.10, that same word, archegos, is used in reference to Jesus being the author of salvation, the originator of salvation, the pioneer. Jesus, Peter says, is the author he is the originator. He is the pioneer. He is the prince, Archegos, of what? Life. He is the originator of life. What is that if not a clear claim to his deity? All these terms are a clear claim to Jesus' deity, aren't they? The Holy One? That's why we said David wasn't talking about himself when he said God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Not only could they go over and see David's sepulcher and that his body had decayed there in the tomb, 
but he would never be so blasphemous to refer to himself as the Holy One. There's only one Holy One. And Peter says it's Jesus. There's only one righteous one. There's only one originator of life, prince of life, and that is Jesus. You see what a series of paradoxes there are in this, in this sermon, this first part of this sermon? The servant, the servant of the Lord, the servant has been exalted, glorified. The deliverer was delivered over to the Gentiles for crucifixion. The holy, righteous, just one was rejected for an unholy, unrighteous, unjust murderer. And they put to death the prince of life. Isn't that a lot of paradoxes? That's exactly what happened. And then in verses 15 to 18, Peter gives the tremendous contrast between how men treated Jesus and how God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, honored his servant son. You know, God is great enough to overcome the evil of man and use it for his glory and his purposes, isn't he? Isn't that his specialty? Genesis 50, 20, what man meant for evil, God turned to good. And ironically, God's purposes are for man's blessings. He takes man's evil and he turns it around for man's blessing. What a great God. I wouldn't want to ever serve any other God but our God. Would you? The holy, righteous, just God. As Dr. Warren Wearsby states, he says, quote, Calvary may have been man's last word, but the empty tomb was God's last word. How foolish it was for man to think that he could keep the prince of life dead. How absolutely foolish. You remember Peter's words in that first sermon on Pentecost when he said about Jesus, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he be holden of it. It was impossible for death to hold Jesus. Death cannot hold the one who created life. Death cannot hold the holy one the just one who has no sin. Death is the wages of sin, right? Death can't hold one who has no sin. Death cannot hold the one who holds it. Death can't hold the one who holds death. Who holds death? Jesus holds the keys to death and hell. Thus Peter says, Jesus, the prince of life, was raised up. Piece of cake. Like I told you earlier, piece of cake for him. And then he goes on and says, and we are witnesses. You know, he's speaking of himself and John and what other, other of the 120 original members of the church were there. He says, we are, we are witnesses. We saw him raised back to life. We saw him resurrected. We saw him alive. We saw his empty tomb. Now, we know from what happened before this sermon was finished that there were indeed religious rulers present listening to Peter. And there were, if you look at Acts 4.1, there were Sadducees there. And you can imagine that they were seething in anger. It's amazing that they lasted all the way to verse 26. 
because these guys hated the mention, even the mention of the word, what? Resurrection. They, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And therefore, these guys are there. They're hearing Peter. And all they would have had to do to disprove Peter's claim was to produce Jesus' body. That's all they would have to do. The church would have imploded. That would have been the end of the church right then and there if they had gone and gotten the body. But the Sadducees could not do that. They couldn't even find one DNA cell of the Lord's body if they searched the whole planet, could they? Where was his body? A place they couldn't go. His body was in heaven, glorified. Well, Peter presents a second proof that Jesus is alive other than the many witnesses. He goes on to tell them Jesus is alive. The proof is the miraculous work that they had just beheld. And that, now here is where he gives his audience the information that they had wanted to know regarding the miracle of the healing of the lame man. This is verse 16. Peter tells them that the miracle of the healing of that man was accomplished on the basis of their faith in him. And when I say, say their faith, I'm speaking of the faith of Peter and John. The miracle was wrought in the man because of the faith of Peter and John in the name and in the power of Jesus. Peter doesn't take any credit for the miracle. It was the work of the risen Savior in whom now also the lame man had placed his face. faith. Not his face, his faith. The first half of verse 16, verse 16 is kind of confusing, but the first half of the verse where it says, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, that's talking about the faith of Peter and John. The second half, whom ye see now and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness, that's talking about the faith of the lame man. You get it? So the first half is the faith of Peter and John. The second half of the verse is about the faith of the, the lame man. The perfect soundness, the wholeness of the man in their presence was a clear testimony that the miracle worker who they had put to death, and everybody knew that Jesus had been a fantastic miracle worker, the one they had put to death was yet alive, and he was working through his servants. Peter and John. Well, having laid heavy guilt on the people for having followed their rulers in crucifying their own Messiah, Peter doesn't just leave them there, you know, hopeless, does he? He's not through with his sermon. He doesn't just lay all the guilt on them. In verse 17, notice he addresses the Jewish people listening to him as brethren. That's kind of softening the blow a bit because he's identifying with them. They're his own people. He's Jewish. They're Jewish. He calls them brethren. He's identifying with them also in their ignorance of all the things that God had showed beforehand through the mouth of all his prophets. Now that's interesting. Look at verses, is that 18? Yeah, verse 18. The mouth is singular, isn't it? But prophets is plural. You know what that means? It means the word of God is one divine mouth. Many men writing things 
but one author, one mouth. Now, Peter, you know, Peter and the other apostles, they had likewise been ignorant that the scripture declared a suffering Messiah, right? Remember the first time that they heard when Jesus said that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer and die and they never heard the resurrect on the third day because they were always so shocked at hearing that he was going to die? Remember what Peter said? Oh, Lord, be it never, you know, never, no, no. So he's identifying. He says, I understand that you didn't get that, that the Messiah would suffer and die because we didn't get it either. So he's, you know, softening the blow. They didn't know that until the resurrected Lord himself opened the Old Testament scriptures to them. In his post-resurrection appearances, when the Lord Jesus opened up the scriptures and showed them from Moses and all the prophets how it behooved Christ that he must suffer. Remember how he went through the whole Old Testament and showed his men how, yes, look at this. This was actually talking about me suffering especially like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, all kinds of places, even um, Abraham's uh, offering Isaac. And he showed them all those places. But these guys, the apostles didn't even get that until the resurrected Lord taught them. So definitely Peter can identify with the Jews. You see, the Jews were not guilty for their failure to piece together all the Messianic scriptures and figure out that the Messiah would suffer and die and resurrect. That's not what they were being held accountable for not getting. Just like where we are, we don't really have it all pieced together how everything's going to work out in the second coming, do we? And we have a general idea, but a lot of us are confused about when is the war of Gog and Magog going to happen and, you know, little details that we don't know. So they're not being held guilty for not having pieced all that together and and understand that their Messiah was going to suffer and die. But they were guilty for having rejected him in light of all the messianic prophecies that they could understand and that were definitely fulfilled in him. And they were guilty for condemning him in light of his obviously God-empowered miracles. And they were guilty for demanding his death even when Pilate repeatedly determined that he was innocent. And they were guilty in rejecting a perfectly holy and righteous man. Remember when he said, who can convince, convict me of sin? Nobody could, except blasphemy, and he wasn't guilty of that because he was who he said he was. They were guilty of asking that Barabbas, a murderer, be released in his place. But Peter compassionately reached out with the hope of forgiveness for what they had done. He was not lessening their guilt, really. He's not mitigating their guilt. God fulfilled what he had foretold, which they were ignorant about. And yet, they were still accountable for their wicked rejection and their murder of an innocent, illegally tried man who had done nothing but good and powerful things. That's what they were guilty of. So the third proof presented here for Christ's resurrection, besides many witnesses, many of us have seen him alive, and the miraculous work of the healing of the lame man, the third proof Peter gives for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the messianic word, the mighty word 
all the prophets would be the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament speaks about Jesus. So that's the right focus. And now the rest of the sermon is the right appeal. Let's look at verses 19 to 26. Peter goes on and he says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Isn't that what you want? Mm-hmm. Blotted out. They used to use an ink that actually didn't have any acid in it. So when you blotted it, it disappeared totally. <laughs> like invisible ink. He says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Notice again the singular mouth and the plural prophets. That's, that's speaking of divine inspiration, by the way. And then verse 22 for Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. He would come from the Jewish people, this prophet, like unto me. The prophet would be like Moses in that he would be a deliverer. Didn't Moses deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt? Jesus came to deliver all of us from our bondage to this world. And so Moses said he would raise up um, a prophet like unto me, him, now here's the warning that Moses also said, and this is in Deuteronomy 18, 19, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds or nations of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. After Peter proclaimed the crime, then he offered the pardon for the crime. The prosecuting lawyer has not only become the lawyer for the defense, but now he is the pardoning judge. Peter's all three. First of all, he's the prosecuting lawyer, and then he moves over here, and he's the lawyer for the defense, and then he goes up and sits in the judge's chair. He's the pardoning judge who tells the guilty to repent and be saved by trusting Christ so that their sins will be blotted out and the times of refreshing would come from the presence of the returned Lord. In verse 19, Peter was not only calling for individual repentance and conversion, but he is also calling for national repentance and conversion. Conversion. The nation 
under her religious rulers, was guilty of having condemned her Messiah to die. So Peter's statement, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? He is spirit-filled. He is spirit-led. This is in God's word. So this is, this is divine revelation. And Peter is telling us that if the nation of Israel had repented corporately, like he's telling her to do here, appealing to her, and if she had put her faith in Jesus Christ at this time of the early church, just maybe a couple months from when they killed him, if they had repented, he would have returned. The Lord Jesus would have returned way back then. And um, he would have established his kingdom. The times of refreshing, that's a term that is used frequently in the Old Testament scriptures to regard, uh, regarding the, the millennial kingdom. It refers to the time of God's great outpouring of his spirit that will occur when the Jewish people do finally, corporately, as a nation, repent and turn in faith to Christ in preparation for the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year literal kingdom of, of Christ on earth. This is the time of refreshing. It's also called in Ezekiel the showers of blessings. We have a song about that, don't we? That period of time is called the showers of blessings. The prophet Joel speaks of it as a time of plenty and a time of satisfaction. Aren't you longing for that kingdom? Oh, I am. Showers of blessings and plenty and satisfaction and refreshing. If the vast majority of the people of Israel, of the Jewish people and the leaders, you know, if the vast majority had repented during these early days of the church, then what happened in partial fulfillment on the day of Pentecost would have happened fully. And Christ would have returned. His return would have taken place during that first generation. The church age would have been a whole lot shorter than it has been. <laughs> now there were, and we'd already be in the eternal kingdom, wouldn't we? The millennium would be over because we're 2,000 years later. We'd be just in the eternal, well, I don't know where we'd be because maybe we wouldn't even have been born. <laughs> I don't know how that would work. Maybe we would have been born during the millennial kingdom and then we would have just gone into the eternal state in our, in our bodies. I don't know. I can't think that <laughs> well right now. But I do know the church age would have been a lot shorter. Now, there were, of course, individual Jewish people, even by the thousands, who initially did repent, right? First 3,000, now it's growing up to 5,000. And there, there were many people, individual Jewish people. But um, Israel's leaders and the vast majority of the Jewish people, not only in the land of Israel, but the vast majority of the Jewish people out in the diaspora, you know, the Jews that were scattered in the Gentile lands, they yet rejected the second call of the Holy Spirit's ministry, just as stubbornly as they had rejected the first call of Christ's ministry. And of course, you know, this is all just speculation because God knew that all of this would happen. So eventually, the saving message of the gospel was taken from, first to the Jews, right? They started in Jerusalem, the city that killed the Messiah. 
and it spread out. That, but, you know, as they rejected, it, the gospel then spread to Samaria, Acts chapter 8, and then eventually to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. The general principle of Peter's message for individuals is this. I'm not speaking corporately now to the nation, but for individuals. Here's the, the basic principle of his message. No repentance. This could be a bumper sticker. I just thought of that. <laughs> no repentance, no refreshing. That's it. The refreshing comes when? When does the refreshing come? At the moment of one's salvation. When we turn from our iniquities, our sins, and we turn to the Savior, we are personally indwelt by the Spirit of God. He is poured out in us. That's our time of refreshing, individually speaking. Well, the long appeal of Peter continued as he exhorted his listeners to believe that what had been preached beforehand by God's holy prophets. If they would reverse the verdict of their leaders that the, their leaders had made about Jesus, then God would send Jesus to them. He will come. Of course, they didn't do that. Um, but he will come when? When will Jesus come? When Israel repents and does acknowledge him as her Messiah. That's Peter's message, and Peter was spirit-led, spirit-filled, and so we know that Israel, even at this time, could have had the times of the restoration, restitution of all things. That's how he refers to it in verse 21. That's the same thing. The millennial kingdom has many names, okay? Showers of blessings, the time of refreshing, the time of the restitution of all things. It's also called uh, the time of restoration, and it's called the regeneration. That's a lot of R's, isn't it? Refreshing, restitution, restoration, regeneration. But it all speaks of the millennial kingdom. But she could have had it at that time, but she did not, and um, she did not accept him. And until she accepts the king, there will be no kingdom. And in the meantime, Peter said he remains, where is this, verse 21. Where does he remain in the meantime? In heaven, in heaven. The times of restitution are just terms for the millennial kingdom. All right, I already told you all that about regeneration. Okay, when, when Christ does establish his kingdom on earth, and I think that time is growing very, very closely. I know Barbara was asking me about the, the uh, red moons. You know, this year there's going to be four red moons, and every time there are four blood moons, that has always been something very, it's always been at a time when there's something very significant going on in Israel. And in this year, and they all fall at Jewish feast times. I mean, it's, it's really, I think, and we're on the precipice of something happening, don't you know, with Russia and Iran and hmm, talking about the war of Gog and Magog. I think something's going to ha happen very quickly. Um, <clears throat> but when he does establish his kingdom on earth, you know that the curse is going to be, it's going to be reversed. The curse on man and the curse on this. It's so beautiful out, isn't it, right now with all the dogwoods and the azaleas and everything that's in bloom? But can you imagine what it's going to look like when there's no more curse? The beauty of it all? No more ticks and weeds <laughs> and mosquitoes. <laughs> 
And snakes will still be around, but they just won't have venom and all. Anyhow, uh, nature will be regenerated. That's why it's called the times of refreshing or the time of regeneration. To its pre-sin condition, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, it says in the scripture, and will blossom. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling, whatever that is. Well, what is that? That's me, the fatling. <laughs> they'll walk together. It says they'll walk together with a little boy leading them. I think it says you can even send your child out to play in the viper pit. No, I don't think I'm going to go that far, but... <laughs> Uh, peace and joy and holiness and justice and health. I'm not feeling too good today, so that, that's kind of exciting. Prosperity, freedom from oppression. All those kind of wonderful things are going to prevail. No more crime, no more danger, no more proud, arrogant rulers, because all of that will be squelched by a benevolent, holy, just, righteous king. King of kings, Lord of lords, and king of kings. It will be a benevolent, theocratic dictatorship. And that's the dictatorship I'm looking forward to. Well, these things were all foretold by, the, by God through the mouth of his holy prophets. Since the world began, Peter says in verse 21, men did not come up with this idea of a one-day utopia. Who came up with that? God. This is ever since the world began. I mean, he made a perfect utopia. We're the ones that messed it up. And he spoke it through the mouth, singular, of his holy prophets. This is another very clear declaration of divine inspiration. So then Peter's appeal argument begins with Scripture. Verse 22, Moses, he says, back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, predicted a prophet deliverer like unto himself who the Lord God would raise up from among the Jewish people. Now the Jews knew this. They knew this prophecy and they knew it was messianic. They knew that Moses had been talking about the coming Messiah. What was Moses' warning with regard to the Messiah when he came? who Peter has already told them is Jesus, who God has already raised up and glorified. The warning is, hear him in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Did they do that? No. <laughs> and he goes on, he says, if you do not hear that prophet, you shall be destroyed. This is the word of the living God. Not only did Moses speak this, but then he goes on and says, all the prophets from Samuel forward, all the prophets have likewise foretold of this. The Lord Jesus, remember, said to Israel's proud spiritual rulers, he said, in effect, you guys are so puffed up. You think you know the scriptures. You know, you search the scriptures and study them and memorize them because you think in them you have eternal life. But they are they which testify of, of me. What's the scripture all about? Him. It's all centered on him. They didn't listen to whatsoever he said. But Peter is giving a second chance, isn't he? A second appealed here to them. And then he goes on, verse 25, um, a second 
part of his appeal is based on the covenant that God made with Israel through Abraham. That in thy seed, God said to Abraham, in thy seed, singular, shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 3. You know, I just never understand why the Jewish people didn't understand that, that they were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You know, it said all the way back to Genesis 12, you're to be a blessing from your seed. You know, all the nations are to be blessed. But they always wanted to keep everything to themselves. But the Jews had been promised that it would be from Abraham's seed through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Isaac, and then down through Jacob, whose name was strange to Israel, that the promised seed, singular, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would come, the deliverer. And Galatians 3.16 makes it very clear, as Peter does here, that that seed is who? Christ. The seed is Christ, it says in Galatians 3.16. Well, finally, verse 26, Peter's appeal argument comes from their covenant privilege, Israel's covenant privilege. It was to Israel first that God, after having raised up his son, his servant, Jesus, sent him through his church, to bless them by turning every one of them, every single Jewish person, from his or her iniquities. You see, not only was it first to Israel that God sent his son through Mary. You know, he promised, I will, through the seed of Abraham. That it's first to Israel that he sent his son, but even, this is what's so amazing, even after she rejected his son, and killed him. Yet, it was first to Israel that God sent the gospel message to bless them by turning them from their iniquities. Do you get that? That's amazing. They could repent, and they could be converted. They could have all of their sins blotted out. And even that first generation could have received the millennial kingdom. That is amazing grace. Well, this was as far as Peter got before his message was interrupted. It was a message, remember now, given to lost people. It never says that these are devout Jews. I think that first crowd was, you know, they went from Judaism into the church. I think they were already people who believed in God, etc. We talked about that. This is given to lost people. And yet, it is full of the most profound theology. You know what theology is? When we hear that word, what do we think? Ooh, deep and wide, right? Dry theology. Study of God. It's also full of Christology. It's Christ-centered. It touched, think of this, it touched on God's covenants. It spoke of Trinitarian relations between the Father and the Son. It speaks in, in several places about the inspiration, God's inspiration of the prophets, divine inspiration. It speaks of the dispensations of God. It speaks of the ultimate redemption of all things. It, it talks about national and individual salvation that God provides. You know, a preacher should also be a precise theologian. Who's our example here? Peter. Right? Peter. A preacher should also be a theologian, even when preaching to the lost. 
Do you know there was a day, and it wasn't that long ago, when that was true? That was very true. But I asked the question, where are the preachers today? I mean, they're few and far between, who are also known for being precise theologians. When an issue takes place in the church, where are the men that the people can look to and know that they will clearly define the boundaries of the doctrines of the church, apostolic doctrine? You know, nearly every major issue that has divided Christian people goes back to some kind of misunderstanding about theology. If there is something that the early church should teach us, it is that the church pulpits are no place for a kind of a ballpark theology. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's okay if, if at least we get in the ball field whether it's in the left field or in the right field or, or uh, maybe a compromise just right down the center. It doesn't really matter because we can have a sprinkle of this and we can have a little dash of that and maybe we can come to some kind of middle ground agreement on what the Bible is teaching in a certain particular area on a certain doctrine. That is exactly the kind of foolish, wishy-washy, mentality that has led to the shipwreck that has occurred so often down through the centuries of church history, as well as the divisions that have unfortunately been placed between good Christian people. It's because some leader has been imprecise about what the word of God is teaching. So much error out there because preachers are no longer theologians. Peter, our first church-age example of a preacher, was not only spirit-filled, Christ-centered, scripture-filled, kindly bold, applicational, and invitational, but he was very, very good at bringing together the strands of many theological facets. None of them are explained in any detail, right? I mean, that comes later on in the epistles, etc., the book of Revelation. He doesn't explain these things in detail. But do you realize what kind of great understanding it takes to be able to weave together so precisely in one short message the truth of God's covenants with Israel Trinitarian relationships, dispensations, divine inspiration, messianic fulfillments, etc., etc. Peter has come a long way, hasn't he, ladies? A long way. It takes a lot to put this all together. He had a great understanding of Scripture. Actually, he had too much understanding because what he said infuriated the religious rulers who because they couldn't refute his scripture, they couldn't refute what he said with scripture, could they? And they couldn't go and dig up Jesus's dead body. So because they couldn't do that, what did they do? They came in with force and arrested him and John. 
And so the persecution of the church begins. And Lord willing, that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. In your word, thank you for the strength that you have given me in this past hour. I ask, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to be disciplined in your word daily, even in the busyness of our lives. And I know so many of us are so busy with life and children and and just all, all that is in this world, so much more complicated than it used to be. But may we, may we be dedicated to spending time in your word and as we did this morning with your people and to spend time with you in prayer. And may those in the world around us not be able to miss the fact that we have been with Jesus, that there is something light and salty about us that draws them. And may we be kept humble And may we always be dependent on your spirit for your glory and for your honor. For we pray in your blessed name, O Prince of Life. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. (laughs) Yeah, kind of lost you. You got camouflaged.